As we come to God's word, let's first of all pray that God will bless his word. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, you are the light of the world, a light that transforms the darkness of our hearts, a light that leads our path. And we pray this morning that the radiance of your word would guide our steps. May your word pierce into our hearts. May your light shine into the darkness that's there and transform us. We pray for your spirit to illumine us as we open your word this morning. And Father, we pray that your word would not only inform us, but that as we see your glory, you would transform us from one degree of glory to another into the image of your glorious Son. You are sovereign over every human heart, O heavenly King. And so we ask that you would show to us this morning your sovereign grace over sin abounding. Help us to see the length and the width and the height and the depth of your love to us in Christ. And Father, we pray that this great love of yours would motivate us to walk in your light and to purge and to remove the darkness in our lives. So we pray that you would equip us with your spirit this morning in speaking and listening. Help us to pay attention, remove distraction from us and bless us during this time. And we pray this in the forgiveness of our sins for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you... Oops. I invite you to take your Bibles and to turn with me, first of all, to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. This morning we'll be looking at the event in Acts chapter 9, um, verse 1 to 19. Let's read that together. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he may receive his sight. 
Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So far from the book of Acts, let's also turn to Paul's letter to the Galatians. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul is writing about the authority that he has as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Read Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 to 22. Verse 11 to 24, sorry. Galatians 1, verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I received it neither from man... Nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him fifteen days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God I do not lie. Afterward I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea which were in Christ, but they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. So, Father, the reading of God's word, let's also read from the church's confession in the Canons of Dort, in the Canons of Dort, chapter 3, 4, article 16. You can find that in your book of praise on page 579. Chapter 3, 4 of the, the Canons of Dort is about conversion and how God works conversion in our hearts. We'll read from Article 16, which says that man's will is not taken away, but made alive. Man, through his fall, did not cease to be man, endowed with intellect and will. And sin, which has pervaded the whole human race, did not deprive man of his human nature, but brought upon him depravity and spiritual death. 
So also, this divine grace of regeneration does not act upon men as if they were blocks and stones, and does not take away the will and its properties or violently coerce it, but makes the will spiritually alive, heals it, corrects it pleasantly, and at the same time powerfully bends it. As a result, where formerly the rebellion and resistance of the flesh fully dominated, now a prompt and sincere obedience of the Spirit begins to prevail, in which the true spiritual renewal and freedom of our will consists. And if the wonderful maker of all good did not deal with us in this way, man would have no hope of rising from his fall through his free will, by which he, when he was still standing, plunged himself into ruin. And our text this morning will come from Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 will use verses 15 to 16 as a lens to see this passage. Let's read those two verses together. Again, Acts 9 verse 15. But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, Go, for Saul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we heard from last week, we heard from Acts chapter 8 about how the name spread out, the name of Jesus spread out of Jerusalem and started going into Samaria. You remember the, the power of the Holy Spirit over Simon the sorcerer. So the name of Jesus has spread to Samaria and now it's on its way to the ends of the earth. And now in Acts chapter 9, in the book of Acts, we're at a significant juncture. We're at a turning point as the gospel begins to go out to the Gentiles. And to show you just how important this transition is, the writer of this book, Luke, he tells us the stories of two important conversions. First, we have the conversion of Saul, who would be the missionary to the Gentiles. This is such an important story in the book of Acts that Luke actually tells it three times. And second, Luke tells us the story of the first Gentile convert, Cornelius. And both of these stories come during a period of of huge change, this massive moment in the history of the church as the gospel begins to spread out from Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. And so this morning, we'll look at Saul's conversion as it's told in Acts chapter 9 with this title, The Lord Prepares an Instrument for His Global Mission. The Lord Prepares an Instrument for His Global Mission. First, we'll see that He uses an unlikely candidate. Well, last week we saw that the gospel is spreading in the face of persecution. At the beginning of Acts chapter 8, that there was a severe persecution in Jerusalem, and believers as a result spread throughout Judea and Samaria. And already then we're told about one of the masterminds behind, behind this persecution, someone called Saul, Acts 8.3, says that Saul was ravaging the church under the authority of the Jewish government. He was breaking into people's houses. He was taking them off to prison. 
Imagine the fear that this must have engendered in the community of believers. Any knock on the door could be the police come to arrest them for their faith. Well, behind this persecution was Saul. He was the ringleader. He was the mastermind, thinking of all these ways to arrest these believers. And Saul was a Pharisee. So as a Pharisee, he spent a lot of the time in the temple, and he probably had rubbed shoulders with Jesus himself several times. He would have at least heard of Jesus. Jesus, that revolutionary, the the rabbi who broke those Pharisaic laws and who spoke harsh words about them. And Jesus had threatened their status as religious leaders. He undermined their authority. He challenged their understanding of the law. The Pharisees hated Jesus. And this Pharisee, Saul, he was determined to eradicate the name of Jesus from the history books. That was Saul. Chapter 9, verse 1 says that he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Threats, probably threats of murder. And here we see him ramping up the opposition. He's getting worried that this movement is going to spread outside Jerusalem. So he wants to, he's worried that it's going to spread out of his control. So he goes and asks for authorization to do his dirty work in Damascus, about 200 kilometers north of Jerusalem. And note that he especially asks to do his work in the synagogues, to arrest people from the way in the synagogues. Remember, Jesus had said to his disciples in Luke 12, he says, when they bring, bef- when they bring you before the synagogues, don't worry how to defend yourself. So Jesus had said to his disciples that they should expect to be persecuted in the synagogues. And now here we have exactly that, and Saul is the man spearheading this opposition. Saul was a key opponent to the spread of the gospel, the spreading of Jesus' name. He was antithetically opposed to the kingdom of God. So humanly speaking, there was no way that he would play a key role in its spread. He wanted to stop it from going out of Jerusalem. And so it was a miracle that God chose this man to be a catalyst of mission to the nations. He was an unlikely candidate indeed. But this was the man that God chose to be his missionary to the Gentiles, missionary to the nations. Saul, the fierce persecutor, became Paul, a foremost apostle. The menace became a missionary. And there are a couple of quick lessons that we can learn here. First, don't, under, don't underestimate the sovereign grace of God. Don't underestimate the sovereign grace of God. Even the most hardened sinners, the most unlikely candidates for His grace, are not beyond God. His Spirit is able to soften the strongest opposition, the most antithetical to the spread of the gospel. Last week we saw the power of the Holy Spirit in Samaria overcoming Simon's sorcery. And we see it here again in our text. The sovereign grace of God worked by the Spirit is able to overcome even the most severe opposition. Friends, by His grace, God can soften the hardest hearts. This gives us great boldness to pray to God, doesn't it? For our child or sibling or brother or sister or parent or grandchild who has hardened their heart to the truth of God's Word. Because God's grace is able to penetrate into the darkness of their hearts. 
Perhaps you've heard of Augustine. He was one of the church fathers. He was, did much to spread the gospel in, in Africa. And as a young man, Augustine was, was not a Christian. In fact, he went after all sorts of worldly and ungodly pleasures for nearly nine years. It was a long period in his life. And yet during this whole time, his mum kept praying for him every day. For nine years, she poured out her heart and soul for God for the conversion of her son. And God's grace eventually opened up Augustine's eyes to see his beauty. Don't misunderestimate the sovereign grace of God. Well, and second, this incident highlights to us just how radical of a change was happening when the gospel went out to the Gentiles. Because for centuries, the Jews were God's chosen people. God made a covenant with them, with the children of Abraham. They were his special people and not the Gentiles. Jews thought that to be the people of God, you needed to be a Jew. You needed to be of the seed of Abraham. You needed to be circumcised. They were the special people of God. But Jesus had commanded the apostles to make disciples of all nations. And this was a radical change. It was so antithetical to Jewish thought. And so it was going to require a huge change of thinking for the Jews and especially for the Christian Jews. In fact, one commentator even suggested that the whole book of Acts is written to show that all nations are included as the people of God and not only Jews. And to highlight this very point, God chooses the chief Jew, one who's been embroiled in this Jewish way of thinking, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. It was so against his thinking that it required a miraculous change, like conversion like we see in our text. And this event is so important in the book of Acts that it's, that it's told three times. Luke, the author of Acts, he tells a story here where he repeats it in chapter 22 and in 26. And the point is clear that the gospel is going out to all nations. The Gentiles have a share in the kingdom of God. An unlikely candidate, perhaps. But it makes a powerful point. God's sovereign grace is able to turn a fierce persecutor into a foremost proponent of Jesus' name. Sovereign over human hearts and sovereign over nations because he will extend his kingdom to all the nations. But how will this transformation happen? Well, it takes an amazing encounter. It takes a blinding display of Jesus' resurrection glory. Because what happens on the road to Damascus is nothing less than an appearance of Jesus, the glorious Lord of heaven and earth who has risen from the dead. Jesus, who has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, who has received all authority from the Father in heaven and on earth. Jesus, who is the brightness of God's glory. He appears to Saul. Well, Saul sees a bright light and he hears a voice. Note, first of all, that the light came from heaven. It reminds us of Stephen who was gazing into heaven and, and who saw the glory of Jesus. Now this same light flashes all around Saul. It's a terrifying experience that he falls to the ground. It also reminds us of the Old Testament prophets. When God called them, for example, the prophet Isaiah, when he saw the glory of God, he said, Woe is me, for my eyes have seen the King, the God Almighty. The prophet Ezekiel, 
he also saw a vision of the Lord's glory. This is how he describes it in Ezekiel 1, 28. The appearance of the brilliant light all around was like that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. So Ezekiel also saw God's glory. And what happened? He said, when I saw it, I fell face down and heard a voice speaking. So Saul's experience on the road to Damascus, it somewhat mirrors the call of these Old Testament prophets. They saw the glory of God and they were instantly aware of their own littleness, their insignificance before the sheer majesty of God. And so their response was to fall down. Well, out of this blinding glory comes a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? The word Lord simply means master. So Saul recognizes authority, but he doesn't know yet who it is. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Are these not touching words, brothers and sisters? Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, the brightness of God's glory who appeared to Saul in such dazzling display, he identifies with his people in their suffering. Persecuting Christians is persecuting Christ. Persecuting those who follow Jesus is persecuting Jesus himself. Because he lives in us. He lives in us, his people. Isaiah 63, God says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. God identifies with the suffering of his people. It makes us think of Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, when Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. And then the righteous answer and they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? And Jesus says, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus identifies with his people. He feels our sorrow. He feels our pain. He feels the persecuting persecution of his people. Saul was persecuting Christians, which meant that he was persecuting Christ himself. And so it turns out that Saul has taken on a far greater power than he realized. Because by persecuting Christians, he was persecuting Christ. And now he discovers in the brightness of God's glory just how foolish such an undertaking was. There's no way that Saul would be successful in eradicating Jesus' name. There's no way that his mission of persecution would ever be successful. He cannot defeat this powerful Lord who identifies so closely and so beautifully with his people. And so the authority of Jesus, it drives Saul to the ground And it also comes with this compelling message, arise and go into the city and you will do what you must, you'll be told what you must do. Note the word must. That Jesus has authority. When he speaks, he must be obeyed. His words to Saul convey that sense of authority. Saul must follow his commands. And yet at the same time, it's a gentle coercion. At the same time as there being a forceful authority, the call of Christ is gentle and compelling. It's a call which once we have seen his glory, we do not want to resist. 
As Saul himself later says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, the love of Christ compels us, it constrains us. In the Canons of Dort also says it nicely. It says that grace doesn't act upon men as if that they were blocks and stones. It doesn't take away our will and our properties or violently coerce our will, but makes the will spiritually alive, heals it, corrects it pleasantly, and at the same time powerfully bends it. This is the sort of coal that Christ gives. This is the coal that Saul received from Christ. And once he had seen the glory of Christ, there was nothing else he wanted to do. He wanted to listen to him. He wanted to give his life for that glorious king. This is the same is true for us. Because when we see God's glory, when we gaze upon his beauty, we want to live for him. We want to submit to him. And we need our eyes opened to see God's glory by his Holy Spirit. Just like Saul, who needed his eyes to be opened because he was spiritually blind. Even though he was steeped in the Old Testament, he topped all of his classes in, in Hebrew and Aramaic. Despite that, he was persecuting the name of Jesus. He was actually an enemy to the gospel. And brothers and sisters, we also need our eyes open to see Jesus in the scriptures. As we see his glory unveiled for us by his spirit, then we're transformed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, as we behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When we see the glory of Jesus, then we're compelled to love him. We're compelled to give our lives in service to him. So brothers and sisters, do you know Jesus? Because it's one thing to do lots of religious things. Look at Saul, he was full of religious zeal. He devoted his life to the cause that he believed in. But he didn't know Jesus as his savior. He was, in fact, he was living as an enemy of the gospel. He was persecuting Jesus. And so the call comes to you as well this morning, brothers and sisters. You may do lots for the church. You may give generous contributions, but do you know Jesus? And if you don't know who he is, then see who he is this morning. Behold his glory as he appears to Saul on the road to Damascus. See that he is the only one worth living for. The glorious king who has authority over heaven and earth. The one who compels us by his love. The son of God who has died for your sin and risen in glory. No other king is worth serving. No other king has the same authority or the same love as King Jesus. So will you put your trust in him? Will you submit to him? Well, Saul was transformed on the road to Damascus as he saw the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus who had risen from the dead. And this afternoon we're going to be looking at the, the resurrection and we'll see how this appearance of the risen Jesus had shaped Paul's life, but it also shaped his theology, his conviction, and it became his very motivation for ministry. He was convinced that Jesus rose from the dead because he had seen Jesus alive in all his glory. And that was transformational. This was the foundation of his ministry to the Gentiles. Because more than just changing this one man, this appearance of Christ on the road to Damascus, it was a world-changing event. 
It had a global impact. The Lord appeared to Saul in order to transform him into a worldwide witness. Jesus showed Saul his blinding light in order to equip him to spread that light to all nations. We'll see that also he is included into the church as God continues to prepare him for his global mission. After Saul is brought into Damascus, not able to see, he fasts and prays. As one of the top Pharisees, Saul probably fasted all the time, but this time was different. He had so much to think about. You can imagine that those three days were just spent in prayerful reflection, prayers of, of confession for his former way of life, a prayerful delighting in God's mercy and grace and prayerful submission to God's will and prayerful worship of God's glory. But God doesn't just leave Saul there by himself. In fact, God doesn't even tell Saul directly what he must do, but he does it through Ananias, and in this way he draws Saul into his church, into the fellowship of believers. Ananias plays quite a background role in the Bible, but it's quite an important role nonetheless. Ananias was a disciple in Damascus. He was one of those men that Saul was going to come and arrest. And he's heard about Saul. The grapevine from Jerusalem has reached Damascus. He's heard the stories of Paul dragging Christians from their homes. He's heard about Saul, who is the mastermind behind the deaths of Christians. And so it's no wonder that Ananias was afraid to, to go to him. It would be like a leader from the persecuted church in North Korea just walking into the police office with a Bible and a church directory, just handing himself over to the enemy. That's what Ananias was faced with. But the Lord tells Ananias, go, for he is a chosen vessel or instrument, in other translations, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the Israel, children of Israel. And do you notice how Ananias responds? He goes to Saul, he lays his hands on him, and he says, Brother Saul. Isn't that just such a beautiful thing? That Saul had come to Damascus, first intending to come for Ananias to seize him with his hands and to treat him as an enemy. But now, Ananias comes to Saul. He lays his hands upon him, and he calls him, brother. One commentator said that these words must have been music to Saul's ears. What? Was the archenemy of the church to be welcomed as a brother? Was the dreaded fanatic to be received as a member of the family? Yes, it was so. What a beautiful extension of the love of Christ. And here's a word for us as well, brothers and sisters, as we welcome new members into our church. Ananias extended God's grace to the new convert, Saul. He extends the warm hand of fellowship to a former persecutor. Are we as welcoming to new members? If God works in someone's life, we can call them brother, we can call them sister. And as Ananias to Saul, we extend the open hand of fellowship. We accept them lovingly into the family, regardless of where they've come from. 
And this inclusion of into the family of God, it was confirmed by baptism. This morning, we've just been able to see this beautiful event of two babies being baptized, the sign confirming their inclusion into this church. Just as Paul Saul received the grace of God, so God has also given to these children the promise of his wonderful grace. And so an unexpected candidate for world mission, a hardened persecutor of the church, having had an amazing encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, he's now included into the church, unexpected though that may be. And finally, we'll see that God also has an intimidating commission for his new apostle. It's already been hinted at in verse 6, that you will be told what you must do. And the Lord also reveals to Ananias in verse 15 that God is his chosen vessel or instrument that God had chosen Saul before the foundation of the earth. In Galatians 1, it says that God had set him apart and called him by his grace from his mother's womb. And this reminds us of the prophet Jeremiah when God called him. In Jeremiah 1.4, says, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So just like God chose Jeremiah centuries earlier, God also chose Saul for this work. The fact that Saul fought against him, it couldn't stop God's calling because God's call is sovereign, it's invincible. And much of the rest of the book of Acts, it details how Saul, or later Paul, fulfilled this commission. How he bore the name of Jesus to Gentiles, to Jews and to kings, to Felix, to Festus, to Agrippa, to Caesar's household. And further, the book of Acts tells us how much Paul would suffer for the name of Jesus. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. Note again the necessity, how much he must suffer. This was a necessary part of his calling. As Paul later said to the disciples in Galatia, in Acts 14, he said, It is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And yet despite this, Saul was strengthened for his task. The glory of Jesus on that road to Damascus, that was what compelled him. 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul says, Necessity is laid upon me, woe is me, if I do not preach the gospel. Why is Paul so compelled to preach? Why is he so compelled to go to the lands beyond, to share the love of Christ with every person whom he meets? Well, he says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I may save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in them with its blessings. For the sake of the gospel. Because knowing Jesus is so gloriously worth it, so worth sharing with everyone to the ends of the earth. Paul also writes about this in Philippians 3. That about, he writes about all of his qualifications. He writes about being a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, A Pharisee, one who ticked every box of the Jewish law. But he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him. Saul saw Jesus and that transformed him. He wanted only to know him more. And the same is true for us that when we see the glory of Jesus, we want to know him more. We become willing to suffer for his name and we're attracted by his glory. Let that be our motivation, the glory of Christ. Well, Saul was also strengthened for this task. Ananias laid his hands on him and filled him with the Holy Spirit. And so he was able to see again, and the Spirit equipped him for this intimidating commission. And as he says himself so many times, it was Christ working through him. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. He boasts not on his, of his own achievements, but only of what Christ had done through him. And brothers and sisters, the appearance of Jesus on the road to Damascus, it was a world-changing event. First of all, it was world-changing for Saul as God's grace reached into his life and transformed him. Just like all of us, Saul was unworthy to receive God's grace. He was unworthy to see the glory of the risen Lord Jesus, and yet God showed his glory on that road and transformed him from a persecutor into an apostle. And second, the event in our text was world-changing because Saul the Pharisee became Paul the missionary to the ends of the earth, always pressing on to the land beyond. He may have been an unlikely candidate for world mission, but what a tribute to the power and the grace of God. And we know that this same power is at work today. He is able to shine light into the darkest hearts, and he is able to reveal himself to all nations. The Lord prepared Saul as an instrument for his global mission. May he also prepare our hearts for joyful service to him. Amen.